Vincent van Gogh is shot on July 27th, 1890. The next morning, July 28th, Theo van Gogh is opening up shop at his Paris art gallery. An unexpected man barges in. He scans the open space and hastily approaches. He says, Theo. Theo nods with an alarmed gaze. He recognizes him as the Dutch painter, Anton Hershig, whom he personally sent to accompany Vincent in Auvergne, a small town on the northwestern outskirts of Paris only a month ago. The man extends an envelope to him and says, it is from Dr. Gachet. It is about Vincent. For a moment, time freezes. The pendulum hovers still in the liminal space between instances. For a moment, Theo notices the ivory envelope stretched out in front of him, his name penned in black script. He catches the aroma of tobacco from the artist's sleeve and notices the stubble on his face indicating he likely skipped his morning routine to catch the express train back to Paris. The urgency of the moment buzzes like deja vu in his skull. This is no ordinary letter. He feels it in his bones. It is an invitation, and once opened, the events which follow cannot be undone. The words cannot be unread. You cannot uncross a threshold into an abyss. He notices the grace of the slanted morning sunlight as it breaks through the storefront windows and recalls how Vincent's first obsession was to capture sunlight in his paintings. The pendulum arcs left as the tide rushes back in. Theo grabs it. Dear Theo, Vincent has wounded himself. The situation is urgent. I would not presume to tell you what to do, but I believe that it is your duty to come, in case of any complications that might occur. Sincerely, Dr. Gachet. Theo's free hand covers his mouth in shock. His body jolts into action as he grabs his hat and rushes for the door. He boards the first train out of Paris. heading to the small town of Auvergne. His hand has not let go of that note. Staring out of the window, all he sees are echoes of the past. The familiarity of this scenario does not escape him. It was only a year and seven months ago when he was rushing to Arles on a southbound train on Christmas morning after receiving the alarming telegram that Vincent had also wounded himself. That day, he arrived at the hospital to discover his brother with a blood-soaked bandage wrapped around his head and a missing ear. What fresh hell awaits him now? Surely, it can't be worse than that. He is alive after all. When Theo finally arrives in Auvergne, he heads straight for the place where Vincent is staying, the Raveau Inn. He is in room number five, up a circular wooden staircase, in a small attic room lit by a single skylight. Theo finds him reclining on his bed with a pipe in his hand. 
Vincent is very happy to see him. Although he initially protested and pleaded with Dr. Gachet not to contact Theo, Vincent has a gunshot wound just below his ribs. The doctors describe it as about the size of a large pea. Although the bleeding is minimal, the pain seems to seize him up in waves, then subside again. Two doctors have attended to Vincent. Dr. Gachet, who is a local doctor and recent friend of the Van Gogh brothers, and Dr. Mazzeri, a doctor on summer holiday in the town of Auvert. Neither of them is qualified for dealing with bullet wounds or surgeries requiring the removal of bullets. Dr. Gachet is an expert on nutrition and often gives counsel and advice to local neurotic artist types, while Dr. Mazzeri is an obstetrician much more capable of helping if Vincent was about to give birth to a baby than in his current predicament. The best he can do is provide general care. The only reason he is called to the scene is because he happens to be in Auvergne on summer holiday, and there are no nearby hospitals for miles. Dr. Mazzeri examines Vincent and concludes that due to the minimal bleeding, the bullet missed all major organs and blood vessels. He probes Vincent's body no doubt a painful process, and believes he located the bullet toward the back of his abdominal cavity, leaving the possibility that it may have punctured a lung, grazed an artery, or lodged near the spinal cord, all potentially mortal threats. One witness later recalled Vincent, demanding that someone cut his stomach open to remove the bullet. The doctors determined that, since he does not have any symptoms of fever or excessive bleeding, it would be risky to attempt a train ride to bring him to a Paris hospital. So, for the time being, Dr. Mazzeri dresses the wound to prevent infection and aid in healing, and they will visit him frequently to monitor his condition. But how did Vincent get shot? The implication right from the first note Theo receives from Dr. Gachet is that it was a self-inflicted wound, Dr. Gachet had written, Vincent has wounded himself. The innkeeper's daughter, Adeline Raveau, later recalled in an interview that when Vincent staggered into the inn that night, clenching his side, that her father asked him, what have you done? And Vincent replied, I tried to kill myself. And according to Adeline, her father was present for the conversation Vincent had with the police, who came to investigate the reports of a shooting. When questioned by them, Vincent responded, What I have done is nobody else's business. I am free to do what I like with my own body. Unquote. But where was the gun, and whose gun was it? Vincent is known to have hated firearms, and was never seen using one. More on that later. On July 28th, the same day that Theo spends by Vincent's bedside, he pens his fiancée, Joanna, a letter describing what has happened. He writes... Dearest Joe, this morning, a Dutch painter who was also in Auvergne brought a letter from Dr. Gachet conveying bad news about Vincent and asking me to go there. I dropped everything and went immediately and found him better than I had expected, although he is indeed very ill. I shan't go into detail, it's all too distressing, but I should warn you, dearest, that his life could be in danger. What should we think, and what should we hope for him? He was pleased I had come, and were together almost constantly. If he's better tonight, I'll go back to Paris tomorrow morning, but if not, 
I shall stay on here. Poor fellow, he wasn't granted a lavish share of happiness, and he no longer harbors any illusions. He was lonely, and sometimes it was more than he could bear. Don't be too sad, my love. You know I tend to paint things blacker than they are. Perhaps he'll recover yet and see better times. Dearest, if anything should happen to Vincent, it would be better for you to be in Holland, and I shall be strong. Is it not strange that I was so nervous and uneasy all of last week, as if I had a premonition that something would happen? He talks to me so pleasantly, and kept asking after you and the little one, and said you had no inkling of all of life's sadness. If only we could give him more faith in life." Unquote. Theo remained with Vincent the entire day, but something was shifting in his condition. The bullet likely caused an infection and punctured his lung. Vincent's condition was not improving. It seemed to be the writing was on the wall. Yet, he was not afraid. Instead, he seemed to welcome it. The book, Van Gogh, The Life, describes the scene. As the sun set and the attic began to cool, both conversation and rest became more elusive. Vincent's breathing grew shallower and faster. His heart raced. Color and warmth drained from his skin. He had spells in which he seemed almost to be suffocating, Theo recalled. By nightfall, the end seemed near. The spells came more often. They talked less. With each panic of breathing, with each fond remembrance and each flush of tears, the subject of death hovered closer. The brothers had said little about suicide over the years, except to disavow it. But death had obsessed Vincent's letters from the beginning. The thought of death warmed me and made my heart glow, he wrote from England in 1876. He lingered in graveyards and longed to draw corpses. He cherished images of funerals and plagues and portrayals of death. He saw serenity in the faces of the dead and envied their freedom from the burden of life which we have to go on bearing. Dying is hard, he had scolded a mourner at his father's funeral, but living is harder still. The years of failure, penury, guilt, loneliness, and finally madness had shown him a different face of death. Deprived of the comfort of religion by his father's death in 1885, he had failed ever since to fill the void it left. He tested everything, from Tolstoy's nihilism to Voltaire's cosmic laugh, and found them all wanting. In the end, only art consoled. He wrote, My aim in life is to make pictures and drawings, as many and as well as I can. Then, at the end of my life, I hope to pass away, looking back with love and tender regret, and thinking, oh, the pictures I might have made. Unquote. Vincent's fixation on death throughout his life also meant that he often reflected on life after death in multiple ways. He always had his eyes set on the future. He once wrote, Great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. Unquote. And even a future in which his works might outlive him. He understood that the value of an artist's work 
can change over time, becoming more relevant for another era beyond the artist's lifetime. He wrote, I can't change the fact that my paintings don't sell, but the time will come when people will recognize that they are worth more than the value of the paints used in the picture. Unquote. And Vincent reflected on the prospect of the afterlife in the most transcendent and poetic way in a letter to Theo from 1888, written while he was in the Yellow House, he writes this. I feel more and more that we must not judge of God from this world. It's just a study that didn't come off. What can you do with a study that has gone wrong? If you are fond of the artist, you do not find much to criticize. You hold your tongue. But you have the right to ask for something better. We should have to see other works by the same hand, though. This world was evidently slapped together in a hurry on one of his bad days, when the artist didn't know what he was doing or didn't have his wits about him. All the same, according to what the legend says, this good old god took a terrible lot of trouble over this world study of his. I am inclined to think that the legend is right, but then the study is ruined in so many ways. It is only a master who can make such a blunder, and perhaps that is the best consolation we can have out of it, since in that case we have a right to hope that we'll see the same creative hand get even with itself. And this life of ours, so much criticized, and for good and even exalted reasons, we must not take it for anything but what it is, and go on hoping that in some other life we'll see something better than this. Just after midnight, in the candlelit attic room, Theo sits next to Vincent's bed, holding his hand, the light of the moon glowing through the skylight above them. Vincent lays on his back with one arm resting on the floor. He stares up at the night sky and says, I want to die like this. He lays there for another half hour, in Theo's steady embrace and draws his last breath. The struggle is over. His restless heart is finally at peace. In the days that followed, 
Theo was in the deepest grief, but he shoulders the responsibility to give Vincent the dignity in death which he did not have in life. He arranges all the details of the funeral from the location, the time, and even a burial place. He also writes letters and sends telegrams to inform family and friends of the tragic news and tries his best to arrange a proper ceremony, fit for one of the world's greatest artists. The tragic news is received with a strange mixture of sadness and sometimes relief. Relief that somehow Vincent is better off this way, a sentiment expressed most often by family members who knew of Vincent's difficult life, but who lived far enough away and removed from Vincent that they only knew him as the black sheep of the family. It was better that he was no longer suffering, they'd say, with the subtext that it is also better for the family name, more convenient that he is gone. But even when this sentiment came from the closest family members, Theo took it as the deepest insult. It truly showed that even in the end, no one understood Vincent, except Theo. In response to their sister, Lies, he wrote, To say we must be grateful that he rests, I still hesitate to do so. Maybe I should call it one of the great cruelties of life on this earth. And maybe we should count him among the martyrs who died with a smile on their face. He did not wish to stay alive, and his mind was so calm because he had always fought for his convictions. Convictions that he had measured against the best and noblest of his predecessors." Unquote. In a letter to their mother from August 1st, Theo writes this passage. It is a sadness which will weigh upon me for a long time, and will certainly not leave my thoughts as long as I live. But if one should want to say anything, it is that he himself has found the rest he so much longed for. If he could have seen how people behaved to me when he had left us, and could have seen the kindness which so many showed for him, he would, for the moment, not have decided that he wanted to die." Unquote. In a letter to his wife, Joanna, from a day after the funeral, Theo writes, My dearest Joe, fortunately he was still alive when I reached Auvers, and I didn't leave his side until it was all over. I can't write about it all, but I shall be with you soon and I'll tell you everything. One of his last words was, This is how I wanted to go. And it took a few moments, and then it was over, and he found the peace he hadn't been able to find on Earth. The two doctors were marvelous. Dr. Gachet had summoned the village doctor because he didn't trust himself, but nevertheless, it was he who did everything. Afterwards, he scarcely left me alone for a moment and was extremely kind. Everyone was splendid. The following morning, eight friends arrived from Paris and elsewhere, and in the room where the coffin had been placed, they hung his paintings, which looked so very beautiful. There were masses of bouquets and wreaths. Dr. Gachet arrived first with a magnificent bunch of sunflowers, because Vincent loved them so much. There are lots of artists living in Auvers, and many of them came. Your brother Dries came too. There was much to be done to have the funeral take place on time, but it was all arranged. 
and waiting the last hour was hard. He is buried in a sunny spot among the wheat fields and the churchyard. It hasn't the unpleasantness of Parisian churchyards. Dr. Gachet spoke beautifully. I said a few words of thanks and then it was over. I managed to leave in the evening, but oh, how empty it is everywhere. I miss him so much. Everything seems to remind me of him. In the coming days, the weight of this tragedy and grief will only reinforce Theo's conviction and moral duty with a new purpose, to be a champion of Vincent's work, that he should not have toiled in vain, that his 900 paintings become carriers of the living soul of Vincent. In a letter to their sister, Lies, from August 5th, Theo writes this passage. In the last letter which he wrote me, and which dates from some four days before his death, it says, I try to do as well as certain painters whom I have greatly loved and admired. People should realize that he was a great artist, something which often coincides with being a great human being. In the course of time, this will surely be acknowledged, and many will regret his early death. Chapter 6. The Gunshot We are not done with Vincent's death. As much as it would be more convenient to move on, we have to come to terms with the fact that his death is one of the reasons he is famous. His tragedy is one of the reasons his story keeps being retold generation after generation. If he had lived for another 10 or 20 years, I have no doubt that he would be an equally important figure in art history. But without the tragedy, does his story make it into popular culture? Without the mental health crises and the apparent suicide, would there be countless films, documentaries, TV shows, novels, biographies, and theater productions? And so, it is our responsibility as Vincent enthusiasts to know what really happened, to understand the tragedy through the humans involved, because in spending this time with them, we have grown to care for them too, and perhaps even love them. And there is some solace in finally knowing what really happened. For over a century, it has been accepted in popular culture that Vincent van Gogh committed suicide by shooting himself in the stomach, this is what the old art history textbooks say, and this is also what the biography I read about Vincent as a teenager said. But what if that story is wrong? In the last two decades, an alternate theory has prominently emerged, based on some compelling evidence, a theory which has gained enough support that recent biographers and filmmakers have adopted it as their interpretation of what happened. In that interpretation, we effectively see a parallel dimension where Vincent is not the troubled artist type who commits suicide by his own hand, but the romantic artist type who is murdered by someone else. On what grounds can someone make such a bold claim? 
to rewrite a suicide as a homicide. What evidence is there to support it? And if all the evidence for both scenarios is presented before you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what do you choose? Let's find out. In this chapter, I will share with you all the relevant evidence for both equally tragic scenarios, suicide or homicide, so you can make up your own mind. And afterward, I will share with you what I think happened. First, the timeline of events. In July 1890, Vincent is in the small town of Auvers, where he has been staying for two months since leaving the asylum. Before heading to Auvers, he visited Theo, Joanna, and their newborn son, little Vincent. He even held him in his arms. But as in the past, the urban anxieties of Paris were just too much for him. He instead opted for the artist-friendly town of Auvers, northwest of Paris. And so he has taken up lodging in the Raveau Inn. That's R-A-V-O-U-X. A family-owned establishment with an artist's cafe on the first floor and a boarding house on the second. He is on good terms with everyone, including the owner, Gustave Raveau, and the other local artists in the town. On the morning of Sunday, July 27th, Vincent is out painting in the fields. Somewhere around the afternoon, he returns to the Raveau Inn for his midday meal. Vincent has been keeping a predictable schedule of work and rest, enough so that the restaurant staff at the Raveau Inn know when to expect Vincent to stop in for his meals. After his midday meal, he arranges his painting supplies for an extended walk into the countryside, perhaps to scout a new location for a landscape and capture the setting sun on his canvas. He slings his bag of paints and brushes over his arm and his easel and a canvas over his shoulder. No one clearly recalls the exact direction he goes. Such details are commonly missing in witness reports, things which are so commonplace that we fail to notice them. Hours pass, the sun has set. The Ravos and their guests are enjoying a summer evening dinner on the cafe terrace. Someone notices Vincent staggering back, emerging from the shadows of the darkened street without his bag, his canvas, or his easel. One of the witnesses recalled, he was holding his belly and seemed to be limping. His jacket was buttoned up, Unquote. An odd detail on such a hot summer day. He passes them without saying a word and heads straight to his room. The book Van Gogh, The Life mentions this. Gustave Raveau, concerned about his guest's strange behavior, listened from the bottom of the stairs. When he heard moaning, he climbed to Vincent's attic room. He found Vincent lying on his bed, curled up in pain. He asked what was wrong. Je me suis blessé, Vincent replied. I wounded myself as he lifted his shirt and showed Raveau the small hole under his ribs. Unquote. This is all that is officially known. The news travels through the small town fast. Yet when the police arrive to investigate, no witnesses come forward about the shooting. No one admits to letting Vincent borrow a gun, and no one comes forward to claim they are missing a gun. In addition, no one claims to find Vincent's supplies or the gun he apparently used. It is so frustrating to have so little evidence, especially because the evidence we do have just 
doesn't add up, as we shall see. Both scenarios, the suicide and the homicide, agree on all of these stated details regarding Vincent's departure and return. Where they differ is anecdotal evidence, interpretation, and conjecture. Scenario one, suicide. Here is a list of evidence I have put together which points toward suicide. One, according to Gustave Raveau, the owner of the inn, and the first person Vincent spoke to after the incident, Vincent said, Je me suis blesse, French for I wounded myself. Two, in the urgent letter that Dr. Gachet writes to Theo to summon him to Auvers, he mentions Vincent has wounded himself. Three, Vincent desperately tries to convince Dr. Gachet not to contact Theo, possibly a sign that he is embarrassed about the botched suicide and does not want to have to explain himself to Theo. Four, the strange location of the wound may be because of Vincent's inexperience with guns. There is not a single account of him owning a gun his entire life. Perhaps he was aiming for his heart, but the awkward distance caused him to fumble the gun's angle and shoot near his stomach. Five, one of Vincent's friends, Emile Bernard, who was also an artist, kept a correspondence with Vincent and he attended his funeral. He spoke with both Dr. Gachet and Theo at that funeral. Emile Bernard later wrote that when Vincent was on his bed, Dr. Gachet informed him he intended to save his life from this wound, but that Vincent replied, then I'll have to do it over again. Six, the local church in Auvers, where Theo had initially scheduled Vincent's funeral, denied to give him proper ceremony without clarifying their reasoning. It is assumed they denied a traditional ceremony to Vincent because it was already rumored he took his own life. Seven, Vincent was facing an uncertain future. Theo was now a husband and a father, but he was also less stable financially due to difficulties at his job and serious considerations to leave his current art dealership firm. And to make matters worse, he was also sick with syphilis, and their child's health seemed to also be wavering at that time. Given all of that, it was uncertain if he would be able to support Vincent a few months later. The reality of this scenario may have made Vincent feel like a burden. In the last two letters, there seems to be a tension between them, like something is unsettled, and it is not yet clear what the future will hold. This kind of instability and emotional turmoil may have exacerbated Vincent's undiagnosed mental illness, as we know it had in the past. Pair that with alcohol consumption and smoking, and it starts to look more and more like the circumstances that caused the ear incident. 8. A gun was found. Not at the time, not in the days that followed, but 70 years later. Yes, a farmer in 1960 found a corroded revolver in one of the fields that it is theorized Vincent shot himself. So you can view pictures of this revolver, as well as other important artwork related to this episode, on my site, mjdorian.com forward slash Vincent, or follow the link in the show notes. Once there, just click on the companion gallery associated with this episode. The revolver was discovered on the surface of the soil and not buried, implying that whoever used it dropped the gun or abandoned it. 
The decades of rain have left it looking like a solid piece of rust in the shape of a revolver. Again, go check out a picture of it. It's really interesting looking. mjdorian.com forward slash Vincent. There is a link in the episode notes as well. That completes my list of eight pieces of evidence that imply suicide as the cause of death. And now to explore the other side, the side taken up by recent films and biographies. Scenario 2. Homicide. In the town of Auvergne, there were two young men, the Secretan brothers, who tormented Vincent for their own personal amusement. They would put salt in his coffee, taunt him while he tried to focus on painting. Once they put a snake in his paint box, and another time they even rubbed hot pepper on the tips of his brushes. Because they knew that when he painted, he would often put the ends of his paintbrushes in his mouth while deep in thought. Okay, the last one is pretty funny. But overall, the Secretan brothers were assholes. The book Van Gogh the Life describes them for us. The leader of the summer boys was René Secretan, the 16-year-old son of a rich pharmacist from Paris. The Secretans had a holiday house in the area and arrived every June at the start of the fishing season. An avid outdoorsman who would readily skip class at his prestigious lycée for a chance to go hunting or fishing, and who admired paintings only if they depicted naked women. René Secretan might never have crossed Vincent van Gogh's path if it had not been for his older brother Gaston, an aspiring artist. 19-year-old Gaston, the sensitive, poetic polar opposite of his brother, found Vincent's stories of the new art and the Paris art world engaging in a way unfathomable to René, who kept expecting the authorities to haul Vincent away any day because of his hair-brained ideas and the way he lived. In his loneliness, Vincent accepted the abuse of the younger brother as the price of the older's companionship. He nicknamed René Buffalo Bill, both for his strutting cowboy bravado and for the costume he bought at Bill Cody's Wild West show at the 1889 Exposition Universal in Paris, complete with boots, fringed coat, and cowboy hat. But Vincent mispronounced the name. He called him Puffalo Peel, a mistake that only incited René to more aggressive taunts and greater extremes of ridicule. For an extra touch of authenticity and menace, he added a revolver to his ensemble, an antiquated .38 caliber pea shooter that went off when it felt like, René recalled." Unquote. Now, these details are not from Vincent's letters. The only reason we have them is from an interview published in 1957 by the author and French physician Victor Duetot, D-O-I-T-E-A-U. Duetot interviewed René Secretan himself at the age of 82 and published the interview in the art journal The Esculape. That's A-E-S-C-U-L-A-P-E. I have found evidence that the journal and interview exists in library records, but this thing is close to impossible to get a hold of. It's one of those documents scholars make trips to view in person. On top of that, it is written in French, and I have not found any English translations of it anywhere. If you're curious, the article is called Du Compagne de Van Gogh, Inconnu les Frères Gaston et René Secreton, Vincent, Tel Quillon Vu, by Victor Duteau. 
testing out my high school French there. Now, it roughly translates as two unknown pals of Van Gogh, the brothers Gaston and René Secreton, Vincent as they saw him, unquote. So it is from this interview that the authors of Van Gogh, The Life, get all of their information about the Secreton brothers. But the question that must be asked is, is an 82-year-old René Secreton a reliable narrator for events of 60 years ago? Probably not. But for now, that's all we got. René mentions that he even posed for Vincent for a sketch. Interestingly, a sketch from that time does exist, which shows a young man wearing a cowboy hat. It is done with chalk on paper, and until René Secreton came forward in 1957, it was unclear who this boy Vincent sketched could have been. Van Gogh, the life, goes on. Although he agreed to pose at least once, fishing on the riverbank, René used his chummy proximity to Vincent primarily as a cover for more elaborate forms of mischief and provocation. Our favorite game, said René, was making him angry, which was easy. It was René, an athletic drinker, who bought the painter round after round of Pernod at the local poacher's bar. It was René who, after discovering Vincent's taste for the pornography that he and his friends traded in, paraded his Parisian girlfriends in the painter's presence, fondling and kissing them to torment poor Toto, as they nicknamed him, and encouraging the girls, some of them dancers from the Moulin Rouge, to tease and torment him by pretending to show amorous interests in him." Unquote. Knowing all of that and the context of the Secreton brothers, let's examine a list which points to accidental homicide, otherwise known in legal terms as manslaughter. 1. René Secreton admits to having a revolver at the time which complements his fixation for the Buffalo Bill character, or as Vincent called it, Buffalo Peel, which was an American export popular at the time. He also admits, according to the authors of Van Gogh The Life, that the gun would occasionally misfire. 2. The Secreton brothers relentlessly tormented Vincent while he worked. Is it possible that on one such occasion, on July 27th, René Secreton pointed the gun at Vincent and it inadvertently fired? This could explain the odd location of the wound on his stomach. 3. Vincent does not leave a suicide note or a goodbye letter, which, we can imagine, could have been something meaningful for someone as thoughtful as Vincent. 4. The local belief in the town of Auvergne for many decades after 1890 is that Vincent was accidentally shot by the Secreton brothers, and as a final act of martyrdom, he refused to accuse them and accepted his death as a convenient means to an end. This local belief has been confirmed by the writer John Rewald, who traveled to Auvergne in the 1930s and interviewed the older residents of the town who remembered the incident. 5. It explains why no one ever found Vincent's painting supplies, canvas, and easel. If someone shot him, even if accidentally, they may have been inclined to hide the scene of the crime, dumping or burying all the supplies near the river, assuming that Vincent might die in the field without making it back to the inn. 6. An article in the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology, Volume 41, titled A Reevaluation of the Death of Vincent Van Gogh, states this, Although little is known how Vincent sustained his mortal wound, 
Art historians have long believed that the death was the result of a suicide, a widely accepted truth for the mysterious death of the then unknown and now iconic artist. The basis and validity of this suicide narrative is still very hotly debated among Van Gogh scholars to this day. We dug deeper into all the circumstantial evidence and testimonies to arrive at a comprehensive overview of the probability that it was likely impossible for Vincent to self-inflict his mortal wound. We used all the available circumstantial evidence related to the day Vincent van Gogh was wounded to present the information and conclusions as if we were before a judge as expert witnesses to answer the question, suicide or murder? If Vincent did not shoot himself in the belly, a red flag in and of itself, whoever inflicted that penetrating wound into his abdomen murdered him. In our study, results from firing the same model revolver that allegedly killed Vincent from various ranges, direct contact, intermediate and distant, demonstrated within a reasonable degree of medical probability, greater than 50%, that it was not probable for Vincent van Gogh to shoot himself without a described powder burn. 7. The gun brandished by René Secretan was later revealed to be a revolver owned by Gustave Braveau the owner of the inn in which Vincent was staying. Adeline Raveau, his daughter, admitted this many years later, in an interview in 1960. Although she did not tie in René Secreton into her version of the events, she continued to maintain that Vincent somehow found or stole the revolver, perhaps to protect her father. The reasoning here is that the Secretons were part of a wealthy family vacationing in the area, and Gustave Raveau would have extra incentive at the time to avoid incriminating them. He also likely did not want to implicate himself by revealing that he had lent his revolver to the notoriously irresponsible youth, René Secretan. 8. Vincent spoke of death and suicide often. Death was an eventuality he accepted, but suicide he often derided. In an 1882 letter to Theo, he quoted Millet, saying, it has always seemed to me that suicide was the deed of a dishonest man. 9. René Secreton does not admit he shot Vincent, but if we assume he did, it would explain why no gun has ever been found. In the case that the revolver found in the 1960s is not the one used in the shooting. Secreton may have eventually returned the gun he used to Gustave Raveau, or thrown it in the river in a panic, or Gustave Raveau could have disposed of it himself. And these are all the most relevant details that support the theory of Vincent being accidentally shot by René Secreton. It's a lot to take in. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, concerning the case of the gunshot that killed Vincent van Gogh, you have been given all the evidence available from both scenarios. Which do you find to be the truth? In your opinion, which is the most plausible? Scenario 1. Suicide. Scenario 2. Homicide. I will give you some time to deliberate. If you would like, during this brief intermission, you can message me your answer on social media. You can find me on Instagram, at MJDorian. Just tell me your verdict, Scenario 1 or Scenario 2. After the intermission, I will return with my interpretation of the events. This is usually the part of a podcast where the host tells you about mattresses or underwear or something else completely random you probably don't want to hear about. 
Instead of subjecting you to that, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for giving this show your time. I know your time is valuable. There are thousands of other shows vying for your attention, and yet here you are. I appreciate that. If you've made it this far, you've either listened to every part of the Vincent series so far, in which case, thank you. I hope it's exceeding your expectations, or you randomly stumbled on this episode. If that's the case, do check those out, episodes 22, 23, and 24. I think you'll love them too. Those are parts one, two, and three of this Vincent series. If you're enjoying this episode, I have a small favor to ask you. Please share this with someone. Send them a link to Creative Codex and say, hey, I've been listening to this, check this out. Or if they're going to one of those immersive Van Gogh experience events, then definitely send it to them. I bet they'll even thank you for it. Oddly enough, I would say this episode is the first true crime episode of Creative Codex, which is a bit of a new angle for me, but all the same, if you know folks who are really into true crime, this would be a perfect episode to send them to. Just send them a link and say, hey, wanna hear a grown man cry? <laughs> oh boy, yes, pretty good. And thank you in advance for that. If you'd like to help Creative Codex grow in other ways, you can buy me a coffee on Venmo. Just search at Creative Codex under business profiles. That's one word, at C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-C-O-D-E-X. You should know this show runs on coffee, lots of it. You can also become a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. There, you can gain access to all the exclusive patron-only creativity tips, as well as episode exclusives, like a recent one I recorded of a rare letter Theo writes to Joanna that describes Vincent's personality, a letter not featured in these episodes, as well as perks for various tier levels. That's patreon.com forward slash mjdorian, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. The link is also in the episode details. Thank you for your support. Now, back to the episode. Okay, and we're back. Over the last five months, I've been studying Vincent. His life, his personal letters, and his artworks. It's the nature of these deep dive episodes. I immerse myself in the life and the mind of these rare individuals, I see it as the only way to find the most meaningful discoveries. In that time, I've shared many of my most important insights about Vincent's mind and his creativity with you. I've honestly lost count of how many of Vincent's letters I've read. It's somewhere in the hundreds, and the countless passages I've underlined, many of which never made it into these episodes, but informed them nonetheless not to mention countless hours spent reflecting on the trials and tribulations this uncommon and exceptional human being faced. There may be some levity throughout this episode or some moments in others, but there is no levity felt in reflecting on this subject, the reality of his death and the scenario which I'm about to share, which I believe completes the picture. I think Vincent pulled the trigger. I don't think it was a suicide attempt, not in the traditional sense. I think it was a psychotic episode. 
Yeah, it's sad and it's tragic, but I think it's the truth. And we already know all of the evidence proves it. I'll show you. Everything else, all of the theories and conjecture and the insistence for unraveling the red herrings, it's all our denial, our mind trying to reason an alternate path, something that sounds more reasonable, because our mind cannot fathom what that is, to be in a place beyond reason, a place where cutting off one's ear, a place where eating turpentine or shooting oneself in the stomach makes sense. Coming to this realization, accepting it, it wasn't easy. Over the last month, I have, like many people, seesawed back and forth, day to day, between thinking the Secreton brothers were to blame, or being convinced that it was Vincent's own hand that fired the gun. Sometimes my conviction would waver hour to hour. There are just so many red herrings in this story to get lost in. The longer you look at one detail or witness account, the more questions you have, not less. And nearly everyone in this event is an unreliable narrator, from Gustave Raveau and his daughter Adeline to the townsfolk of Auvert and René Secreton. In all the versions of that fateful day which I have read in books or seen depicted in films or documentaries, I noticed this fixation on the unknowns, a fixation on filling in the empty spaces with conjecture. But that's where I think everyone gets it wrong. In my theory on what happened, I focus on three things we know, and the importance of those things, their primacy in the events of that day, rather than the bottomless void of things we don't know. It's unsettling not to know. The mind cannot see a void and stand content before it. It fills the void with ghosts and phantoms, with possibilities. It measures the void and says, this part resembles that part, and tests the void's depth with questions. It's as Emily Dickinson said, the abyss has no biographer. Vincent pulled the trigger. Here are the three factors that prove it. Factor one, Theo's account of the events is the only reliable account. Everyone in Auvers that day had reason to embellish and push and pull the truth, or tell an outright lie to achieve some hidden virtue. Everyone except Theo. Of all the people, he is the one who spent the most personal and intimate time with Vincent after the shooting and he is the one who knows him more deeply than anyone on earth. He stayed with him in the attic room all of July 28th, until midnight. And so, we must respect his telling of events over all others. We cannot make the mistake of looking at the hearsay of the other witnesses as equivalent to Theo's account. He has no motivation to embellish. His account does not serve to protect anyone. On the morning of July 28th, the letter Theo receives from Dr. Gachet states, Vincent has wounded himself. This is the first impression from the doctor at his bedside. He phrased his words deliberately. He did not say Vincent has been shot, but that he has wounded himself. 
Theo writes a letter to Joanna that same day, after spending a few hours by Vincent's bedside and consulting with the doctors. Among the various details, we find these statements. If he's better tonight, I'll go back to Paris tomorrow morning. But if not, I shall stay on here. Poor fellow, he wasn't granted a lavish share of happiness, and he no longer harbors any illusions. He was lonely, and sometimes it was more than he could bear. Don't be sad, my love. I, you know I tend to paint these things blacker than they are. Perhaps he'll recover yet and see better times." Unquote. On the morning of July 28th, it is still unclear how serious Vincent's wound is. When the doctors first arrive, Gustave Revaux claims to have heard Vincent yell, when will someone cut this bullet out of my stomach? One of the main elements of the Secreton brothers' theory is that Vincent knew it was a fatal wound which provided him the convenient death he long sought, and so he chose to avoid incriminating René Secreton because he wanted to die anyway. It's a compelling argument, and based on Vincent's temperament, I don't deny that he might have welcomed death. But this theory has no merit when we realize that according to Theo, Vincent and the doctors in those initial hours, they believe he will survive. The doctors reassure him that his vitals are fine and there is no excessive bleeding, which is why they don't rush him to a Paris hospital. And paradoxically, counter to both theories of scenario one and two, Vincent may have even wanted to survive, as he was asking about the surgery to remove the bullet. Why would he want the bullet removed if he was expecting and wanting to die? It was only in the final hours later that night, when the severity of the wound becomes clear, that Vincent tells Theo he is accepting death. In that early haze, when Theo arrives, he finds Vincent in good spirits, smoking his pipe. This is confirmed in his first letter to Joe from that day. If Vincent had been accidentally shot, he would have had no incentive to lie to Theo at that point. He would have simply said, I was shot accidentally by these stupid bastards. We have to remember that the Secreton brothers are not Vincent's friends. And they are not children, they were teenagers of high school age. He has no reason to protect them. They were jerks to him and bullied him at every chance they had. And we have to remember that Vincent is no pushover either. Yes, he is a sensitive artist type, but we shouldn't trap ourselves in painting him as a soft and harmless individual. Were the Secreton brothers assholes? Yes. Is that enough of a reason to try them for murder? No. If being an asshole was a crime, then the prisons would be overflowing. But I digress. René Secreton mentions that Vincent would fly into fits of rage at their pranks, and it was the main reason they kept picking on him, to watch him get angry. So again, if Vincent is assuming he will live, he has no reason to cover for the Secreton brothers. What would you do? If you were accidentally shot by assholes and assumed everything was going to be okay, would you instead lie and say it was a botched suicide attempt? It makes no sense. Let's just put that theory to rest. There is another passing phrase in Theo's account to Joanna that is very telling. When he writes, Is it not strange that I was so nervous and uneasy all of last week, as if I had a premonition that something would happen? Unquote. What is Theo talking about here? It turns out that in recent letters to Theo in the last week, Vincent doesn't seem to be himself. 
He seems to be anxious or disturbed. He mentions incoming personal storms, domestic quarrels in Theo's household, and the fear that he is a burden on Theo. In a rare letter from Theo to Joe, dated July 20th, Theo mentions this. I understand from Vincent's letter that what he means by domestic quarrels are my attempts to achieve my own ends in the matters I discussed with Dries, your brother. That's the only explanation I can think of. It's certainly not clear. If only he's not melancholy and heading for another crisis. It was all going so well. Unquote. In response to Vincent's odd letter, Theo writes, I hope, my dear Vincent, that your health is good, but as you said that you're writing with difficulty and don't speak to me about your work, I'm a little afraid that there's something that's bothering you or that isn't going right. In that case, do go and see Dr. Cachet. He'll perhaps give you something that will buck you up again. Give me news of you as soon as possible." Unquote. In a letter Vincent writes in response, we find these passages of uncharacteristically brief paragraphs. My dear brother, thanks for your letter of today and for the 50-franc note it contained. I'd perhaps like to write you about many things, but first, the desire has passed to such a degree that I sense the pointlessness of it. I hope that you'll have found those gentlemen favorably disposed towards you, as regards the state of peace in your household, I'm just as convinced of the possibility of preserving it as of the storms that threaten it." Unquote. These statements don't sound like the Vincent we have heard in countless other letters, who, even in the restraints of the asylum, seems to find hopeful perspectives. Perhaps it indicates emotional turmoil or an onset of depression. There is an ominous tone, certainly the impression Theo mentions to Joe later. And that opening phrase is so defeated when he writes, I'd perhaps like to write to you about many things, but first the desire has passed to such a degree, then I sense the pointlessness of it. On July 25th, exactly two days before Vincent is shot, Theo writes this passage in a letter to Joe. It is about his confusion in reading that same letter. There was a letter from Vincent which, again, I find incomprehensible. We've not fallen out, either with him or with each other." Unquote. Theo was right. Something was off. Which brings us to our second factor. Factor 2. Vincent shoots himself during a psychotic episode. Vincent pulled the trigger. But it wasn't a suicide attempt, not in the traditional sense. It was a recurring element of his psychotic episodes. Self-harm. We know that in the aftermath of these psychotic episodes, his mind is often cloudy and confused, and in all of them, including the ear incident and the ingesting of paints and turpentine, he had an amnesia for what was said and done. This is why he couldn't clearly explain himself in the aftermath of the shooting. When the officers ask him, did you try to kill yourself? Vincent's response is, I believe so. In Van Gogh, The Life, the authors use that I believe so phrase to indicate that Vincent was still getting his story straight concerning covering for the Secretan brothers. <sighs> but I don't buy it. It's something even stranger. He didn't remember. He didn't know what he had done or why. 
and the only person that understands that aspect of his condition is Theo. Everyone else at the scene probably thinks that is a strange response to give. Either you did it or you didn't do it. But Theo understands. He's seen this before. He is intimately aware. In that moment, he likely recalls laying next to his brother in the hospital at Arlais on Christmas Day and Vincent being unable to recall what happened that led him to cut off his ear. There was no reason to press Vincent any more than that. Theo knew that he wouldn't remember. But if you are paying attention to the details, you might say, well, why did he leave with his paints, supplies, and easel? If he was suffering a psychotic episode, how could he be lucid enough to paint? Yes, I agree. Very good point. There is one account from exactly a year ago that proves relevant here. Recall in episode 24, when Vincent is in the asylum, he suffers three major debilitating psychotic episodes. There is one in August, a month in which he only paints two paintings and doesn't respond to Theo's letter for 30 days. When he does finally respond on August 22nd, he mentions this. This new crisis, my dear brother, came upon me in the fields and when I was in the middle of painting on a windy day. Unquote. That crisis occurs somewhere around the middle of July of 1889. Rough estimates place it either July 16th or 17th, almost exactly a year to the day to when he shoots himself on July 27th, 1890, under remarkably similar circumstances out painting in the fields, or somewhere else nearby. The anxiety of an uncertain future, the stress of knowing his brother may not be able to support him in two months' time, the anxiety of still not being a successful artist despite putting in ten years into the goal, the loneliness of being in a town with no friends or family. I mean, I would likely have a mental breakdown too. But we know, in Vincent's case, those factors as they have in the past put him on a perilous track toward another attack. Add to that the unknown effects that drinking and smoking have on his underlying and undiagnosed condition, and it is a recipe for disaster. We know Dr. Gachet recommends to Vincent about a month ago that he stop drinking and smoking, just in case it is exacerbating his condition. Vincent chooses not to listen. Please understand, I'm not blaming Vincent here. It is just the recipe of a tragedy. Factor 3. Vincent's behavior in the aftermath of the shooting is identical to the aftermath of the ear incident. This one, when I realized it, hit me like a ton of bricks. And yet, it is not mentioned by any biographers or in any documentaries. Again, they get too wrapped up in the unknowns. This one is so obvious that everyone seems to miss it. In the aftermath of the ear incident in December of 1888, Vincent is in the hospital of Arlais. When Theo arrives, after receiving a telegram from Paul Gauguin, he first stops at the yellow house, assuming Gauguin will be coming with him to see Vincent. Theo is told that Vincent has been calling for Gauguin like a madman in fits to tell him not to summon Theo. The reason is never stated. 
but I think we can imagine it is a mixture of embarrassment, regret, confusion. He does not want to face his dear brother in this state and have to explain to him why he cut off his own ear after everything Theo has done for him. The reality is setting in in the aftermath of the psychotic episode. Flash forward to July 28th of 1890, Vincent is on his bed in the aftermath of the shooting. Dr. Gachet tells Vincent they must contact Theo so he can come. Vincent vehemently rejects this idea, raising his voice and pleading with them not to contact Theo. He even refuses to give Dr. Gachet Theo's home address, and Dr. Gachet instead has to send the man with the letter to Theo's art gallery. Why? Embarrassment, regret, confusion. He does not want to face his dear brother in this state and have to explain why he shot himself after everything Theo has done for him. The reality is setting in in the aftermath of the psychotic episode. It is these three factors that convince me Vincent pulled the trigger. One, Theo's reliable account of the events before and after the shooting. Two, Vincent's psychotic episode, which caused the shooting and the confusion that followed. Three, Vincent's embarrassment in the aftermath and his intense protests to contacting Theo, identical to his behavior following a similar psychotic episode a year and a half ago. And that's where I stand. He shot himself in the midst of a psychotic episode, an act of irrational self-harm, a recurring aspect of his mental illness, without the deliberate intention of suicide. As for the gun, if we want to entertain our need to fill a void, it is known to have been Gustave Raveau who lent his revolver to René Secreton, and Secreton claims in his interview that Vincent knew the boys often took swims in the nearby river and left their things by the trees on the riverbank. He could have taken it from them on one of these occasions. There's no doubt he did not trust Secreton with it, I would have certainly taken it from him too. Vincent may have intended to give it back to Gustave Rouveau or to keep it out of René Secreton's hands for a little longer, as he knew the Secreton brothers were only there on holiday. But again, we have to be careful trying to answer these unknowns with possibilities. Maybe it was something else entirely. Perhaps Vincent just found a revolver on a tree stump. We don't know. But if we stick to respecting what we do know, which are three factors, Theo's account before and after the incident, Vincent's impending psychotic episode likely occurring that day, and Vincent's confused and self-conscious behavior after the incident, identical to his other episodes, these point us clearly to the truth. Chapter 7 Joanna and Theo In the days and weeks that follow Vincent's death, Theo is undone by grief. The memories of Vincent become all he can think of and all he wants to talk about. He visits with acquaintances who knew Vincent, sharing stories about him for hours. He writes to Joe, How empty it is everywhere. I miss him so. Everything seems to remind me of him. The book Van Gogh The Life states this. 
He spent hours digging through the piles of Vincent's letters that he had stuffed into a dining room cupboard, often with relief, along with all his other correspondence. Alone with his brother again, he relived the years of trials and tribulations, and a new resolve formed. He wrote to his mother, I find such interesting things in Vincent's letters, and it would be a remarkable book if one could see how much thinking he did and how he remained true to himself, calling it a book that has to be written." Unquote. His new stated mission becomes to give his brother, in death, the success and appreciation he deserved in life. But a new storm is coming, almost as if Vincent's ominous phrase in his final letter to Theo had been prophetic when he said, as regards the state of peace in your household, I'm just as convinced of the possibility of preserving it as of the storms that threaten it. Theo's health had been precarious for years. It is assumed by some biographers that he had contracted a disease from visiting brothels with Vincent when they were together in Paris years ago. Within two months after Vincent's death, Theo's mental and physical health begins to rapidly decline worse than it's ever been. Theo quits his art dealership job. He begins to exhibit paranoia and sudden outbursts of anger, even sometimes directed at Joanna and their child. He is neglecting his sleep, his health, and even his clothes. The doctors officially diagnose him with syphilis, a claim that Joanna refuses to believe. They seek second opinions and third opinions, but there is no denying it. It is known that syphilis can cause damage to the heart and brain, sometimes giving the effects which resemble dementia or psychosis. On October 8, 1890, Theo is admitted to a hospital in Paris. Two days later, the doctors transfer him to a private asylum. The book Van Gogh, The Life, paints the picture. After that, his path mostly followed Vincent's. There were some differences. Theo was physically far sicker than his brother when he surrendered his freedom. But now, the paralysis afflicted his whole body. At times, he could not walk at all. Far more frail than Vincent, in mind as well as in body, he suffered wilder and more dangerous bouts of delirium. He threw furniture and tore at his clothes so violently that he had to be chloroformed into passivity. Instead of young interns like Felix Ray, the best doctors in France attended his case." Unquote. A month later, Joe arranges for Theo to be moved from France to an asylum in Holland, closer to family. They transfer Theo to that asylum by train in a straitjacket, accompanied by guards. Two months later, on January 24, 1891, Theo Van Gogh dies.
just six months after Vincent. The scope of both tragedies together is difficult to comprehend. Even more difficult is to imagine what Joanna must be feeling at this time. Their son, Vincent Willem van Gogh Jr., is turning one-year-old only seven days later on January 31st. I've always assumed that Theo was the custodian of Vincent's work and memory after he died, and that it was Theo who made Vincent a household name. But no, it is Joanna. There are two heroes in this story, Theo and Joanna. Somehow, by some unbelievable willpower, character, and conviction, Joanna picks up the torch. She decides to honor her husband's memory by devoting her life's work to bringing Vincent's art and story to the world. Just imagine it. Her beloved Theo dies after wrestling with a severe mental decline that she witnessed firsthand for six months. And Joe is left with a one-year-old child to care for and a job to maintain. As if that wasn't enough, she now has 900 Vincent van Gogh paintings entrusted to her care and hundreds of letters. Oh yeah, and do we mention that she's not an art dealer and has no experience working in the art market? Her story truly needs to be told. I've tried to track down biographies, but have only found one, which was published in Dutch, of course. An English translation was supposed to be released in 2020, but it wasn't, and there is no update on the Van Gogh Museum website at this time. She is a hero in this story. She deserves to be celebrated, and her story deserves to be told. But in all the biographies about Vincent, she is equivalent to a footnote. At the end of Van Gogh the Life, the authors expand on the nuanced details of Theo's death and how syphilis ate him from the inside for six pages, and then spend one sentence on the last page mentioning that Joanna helped publish the first letters from Vincent and oversaw the sale of his works. That's it? That's all she gets? There's a lot I love about this particular biography of Vincent by Stephen Nafa and Gregory Wright Smith. I know they put a truly admirable amount of research into it, but that's not right. If it wasn't for Joanna, we would have no Vincent van Gogh. His artwork and his story would be a footnote of art history. And I know she didn't do it to seek credit, but come on, she is a hero in this story. If you'd like to see pictures of Joanna or little Vincent, I've collected them and put them on my site. Just go to mjdorian.com forward slash Vincent and click on the companion gallery associated with this episode. Here is some information about Joanna I've been able to stitch together from my research. It will give us a perspective on the enormity of the task she takes on. After Theo's tragic death, Joanna moves with little Vincent to the small town of Busum, 15 miles from Holland. She begins to make her living running a boarding house, what we would today call a bed and breakfast. She also works as an English translator. The household duties keep her very busy, but provide her a steady income and time at home to care for her son. It is within a year of Theo's tragic death that she decides to pick up the torch to carry on the work Theo pursued throughout Vincent's life and which he dedicated himself to after Vincent's death. In a diary entry dated November 1891, Joanna writes, It's all nothing but a dream. What lies behind me 
my short, blissful marital happiness, that too has been a dream. For a year and a half, I was the happiest woman on earth. It was a long, beautiful, wonderful dream, the most beautiful one can dream. And following it was all that untold suffering that I cannot touch upon. I lost him, my dear, faithful husband, who made my life so rich, so full, who awakened everything that was good in me, who not only loved me, but who understood what I was lacking and wanted to teach me. The child he gave me, his image with his blue eyes and his friendly features, his gentle, tender nature, his rich talents, his child is now my treasure my comfort, my support, my all, to whom I cling and who gives me the courage to go on living. And so I've started writing my diary again, not for the sentimental outpourings I wrote down as a young girl, what a lot of nonsense I often proclaimed, but for a moment of self-analysis and self-examination now and then, to keep a better watch on myself and develop a little if possible. I must use all my strength to learn again so that I may be of some use to my boy later and he will not look down on his mother with contempt, as so many boys, and rightly, have to do, alas. Will I ever be able to be a support and help to him? I can do no more than my best. Theo taught me a lot about art. No, let me say rather that he taught me a lot about life. I learned everything through him, the greatest bliss the greatest suffering that teaches us to understand everything else. As well as the child, he has left me another task, Vincent's work, getting it seen and appreciated as much as possible, keeping all the treasures that Theo and Vincent had collected intact for the child, that too is my work. I'm not without purpose, but I do feel lonely and abandoned. All the same, there are moments of great serenity that the satisfaction of my work gives me. If I may just maintain the health to work for our child, then my life will not have been devastated by the loss of my husband, but I shall always bless him and thankfully love him for all the happiness he once gave me. Joanna contacts galleries and museums. The museums want nothing to do with an unknown painter like Vincent, even if he already completed a substantial body of work, 900 paintings. So, she starts small. Just a small gallery showing here, and another there. And slowly but surely, artists and critics begin to notice. After more than a dozen gallery showings, local newspaper articles begin to mention a recent Vincent van Gogh exhibit and the tragic story that is tied to the works. The curiosity grows with each new exhibition. She collects all the reviews about the exhibitions and writes back to the authors, building her network in the art world, one step at a time. Joanna is first looked at with curious suspicion. She is a woman dipping her toes into a male-dominated art industry of the 1890s. She has no experience, she is not an art historian, but she educates herself. She has a knack for negotiation and starts to gain her respect in the art world. It is around this time that she begins to develop a new obsession as well, translating Vincent and Theo's many letters. 
She opens the enormous cabinet that contains hundreds of them, some without dates, without context, and sits every night at her desk, chronologically organizing them, then translating them one by one into English using a typewriter. In a journal entry marked March 6th, 1892, she writes, These last days I have spent every free hour I had absorbed in the letters. I postponed it far too long, but from now on I'm going to undertake it as a regular task, working steadily on until it is finished, not with the passion of the first days, for then I was occupied with it until deep into the night. Such extravagances I must not permit myself. My foremost duty is to be spry and healthy, to be able to care for the child. In thought, I am living wholly with Theo and Vincent. Oh, the infinite, delicate, tender, and lovely quality of that relation. How they felt for each other, how they understood each other. And oh, how touching Vincent's dependence at times. Theo never let him feel it, but now and then he feels it himself. And then his letters are very sad. Often I wept over them. My darling, my dear, dear Theo, at every word, between every two lines, I am thinking of you. How you made me part of yourself in the short time we were together. I am still living with you, by you. May your spirit go on inspiring me. Then everything will be all right with our little fellow. Who will write that book about Vincent? In 1905, Joanna finally achieves the unthinkable. Vincent's work is featured in a solo show in a museum in Amsterdam, which displays 400 of his paintings. <sighs> the exhibition is a triumph. Requests begin to pour in to purchase Vincent's paintings. In her years of learning the ropes of the art market, Joanna developed into a bold negotiator. She often refuses to sell, knowing that the interest will only grow and the work's value only increase. When she feels someone undervalues a work by bidding too low, she instead raises the price. Eventually, arrangements and deals are made with specific museums. And in 1914, after 22 years of transcribing and translating Vincent and Theo's letters, the first volume of Vincent's letters is published. By this point, there will still be challenges in her life's journey but the most difficult and tragic days are behind her. It is like she carries with her the courage and strength of Vincent with the unwavering devotion and patience of Theo. Perhaps it was this part of her temperament which made Theo fall in love with her so quickly when they first met. You can just imagine her in those first few years in the wake of dual tragedies on countless nights standing in a moonlit window near a desk littered with Theo and Vincent's letters, holding little Vincent, rocking him to sleep while ruminating on all of it, on the rare bond shared between the two brothers, on Vincent's genius, and how she will make that legacy known while caring for this child and the torch they will both now carry, all while sweetly singing him to sleep a tragic melody that reminds her of Theo and Vincent and the audacity to have courage and hope 
in the face of life's most difficult storms. This concludes all four parts of the Vincent series, Madness, Genius, and Tragedy. When I first started preparing for these episodes about five months ago, I honestly thought two episodes would be more than enough to cover the final three years of Vincent's life. And then, halfway through producing the second episode, I realized, okay, so this is going to be a three-parter, no problem. I haven't done a three-parter before, but sure, why not? And as you can tell, here we are, part four. But that's the thing about Vincent. There's just so much richness in his story and his artwork that this could have easily been a five-parter. But I'm proud of what was accomplished here, in these four episodes. I'm proud of this sonic portrait of Vincent. I had a blast, actually, creating music and themes that I felt captured Vincent's spirit and the nuance of his thoughts in those letters and I hope you enjoyed it too. On that note, I must again thank our very special guest vocalist, Le Freak. This time, she was the first thing you heard when starting the episode and the last thing you heard upon its conclusion. She is unbelievable. Go follow her on Instagram, at Le Freak. That's at L-F-R-E-A-Q. She's a singer, songwriter, musician, and all-around inspiring creative mind. I'll include all of her links in the episode details as well. Thank you again, Leah. A side note on the theme you hear her singing throughout the show. I had written it originally as a piano piece, and then I thought it would lend more emotion if it was a violin. And finally, I arrived at the idea of a voice. But what I didn't expect is that this voice, this strong yet vulnerable female voice you hear, actually came to represent one of the people in the story, Joanna. When I realized that it could be Joanna singing this melody to little Vincent while thinking of Theo and Vincent, it, it shook me to my core. That felt so right and so profound that in a sense it is Joanna retelling this story. And in a greater sense, this is the truth 
think about it. All of the letters we shared and read in these four episodes, every single word of Vincent and Theo, those words passed through Joanna's hands. She translated all of these letters from French and Dutch into the English we have today. When we read a letter from Vincent, we aren't only hearing Vincent, we are also seeing him through the translator's voice, through Joanna. It's really a remarkable thing, and yet another reason why I felt it was of prime importance to give her a prominent place in the end. To attempt to tell her story, even though there is no English biography of her out there yet. If you're curious, you can find her journal entries online. There is a great resource I stumbled on. And these entries have been translated to English. I'll add the link in the episode details. If you'd like to become a patron of the show and receive access to all of our exclusive patron-only creativity tip episodes, including the ever-controversial Drugs and Creativity, head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. There you can also gain access to episode exclusives, like a recent one I recorded of a rare letter Theo writes to Joanna that describes Vincent's personality, a letter not featured in these episodes, as well as perks for various tier levels. That's patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. The link is also in the episode details. Big shout outs to my Patreon supporters. First, my Karma Coma gang. Christelle82, Dina Sun, Don Frias, Isaac, Jenny Sines, Julio Chavez, Chris, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, and Sam McCohey. You guys are killing it. Thank you so much. Next, the Shadow Fan Plus crew Alex Payne, Blake Huggins, Frank Warren, Gregory Higgins, Hilda, James S.Z., Jay Booth, Joseph Levdal, Logan Kshivitsky, Luis Benton, Michael Pisano. You guys rock. Thank you for your support. Always feel free to send me questions, and I will always be happy to answer in a DM or on the next listener Q&A. And my shadow fam, Anudi Valerio, Ozzy, Barack, Dallas O'Kelly, DVM, Glenn Quilt Swissy, Jay, Jimmy D, John Bergmans, Jay Marchant, Christina Lamore Sanson, Michael Lloyd, Owen McCatsier, Somia Hariharan, Swan, Tess Callahan, Viggs Vericas, Yadi Cisneros, and Zuko's World. Thank you so much for all of your support. All of you keep the show going. If you want to know what's next for Creative Codex, be sure to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, at MJDorian. I often post updates on the show developments there the moment they enter production. Thank you for listening. This is Creative Codex. Until next time, with a good handshake, Dorian Van Gogh.